0: So over the last several weeks, uh, we were looking at what in Buddhist psychology is called the three marks of existence. And the last one um, I brought up that it was related to what in Buddhist, Buddhist psychology is called the Four Noble Truths. And I appreciated that I got a lot of feedback from people in both the morning and the evening program or groups that, um, that people wanted more uh, and wanted to hear this. So uh, we are going to begin to explore the Four Noble Truths. And I'm just going to say that this, you know, the way I relate to the Buddhist tradition really is as a psychology um, a science of the mind um, that has been profoundly useful for my life. Um, these teachings uh, clearly for some people are deeply religious. Um, um, they are all sorts of things for all sorts of different people. Uh, but this is, this is the way I relate to the teachings. Um, uh, and in that context, for me, they've been really, really helpful. So the Four Noble Truths were the first, um, by tradition, the first teaching of the Buddha. And um, because of that, I thought that we would actually start with the story of the Buddha today, instead of moving into the Four Noble Truths. Just to put the context, the teachings into the context of someone who, a real person uh, from more than 2,500 years ago, who lived his life with this question of what relieves suffering, um, what causes suffering and what relieves suffering. I love old wisdom stories. uh, And the fact that this one has been passed down for more than 2,500 years, that to me is reason for um, a a level of, of awe. It's kind of remarkable. It's easy to find lots of versions of the story, and some of them uh, have very fantastical elements, um, myth elements, in them. But the bare bones of the story are really useful for framing the Buddhist understanding of what causes suffering and what relieves suffering, and really in this in in this um, um, very beautiful context of a real person who framed his life uh, in, in, in the journey of this question. So the, the story of, of um, Siddhartha, uh, his name was Siddhartha, um, of his path to awakening is really uh, a striving of understanding how of, of striving to understand that our suffering itself is the path to relieving our suffering, understanding it. So the first thing I wanna say is that he really, he was a real person. I don't think there's, there's really any, any question of that there was a historical person um, by, by the name of Siddhartha Gautama. Uh, he was, uh, by tradition, born into a small kingdom in northern India or um, southern Nepal, right in that, that border region. And the way I think of him is as the world's first psychologist. Uh, and likely, if you look in other traditions all around the world, there were probably plenty of other psychologists of the mind as well. But his, his story has, has been passed down and is still being shared. And one of the things that fascinates me is when you really go to the essence of his teachings, uh, there's remarkable similarity and overlap between what he was able to figure out about how our minds work by simply turning inward and what neuroscience has um, figured out by, by doing MRIs and all of that, so there there was this remarkable um, clear study of the mind that he that he did, um, and framed his life around. The first uh, time his his teachings and his stories. Uh, the stories of him were written down was uh, about 500 years after he died. So, you know, by 500 years later, there, there are lots of variations, but there is a bare bones story that is across all traditions, um, um, and, and shared with these basic, basic elements to the story. So the story is that he was born a prince to this this king in this small kingdom. And the king invited a wise man to come at the birth of Siddhartha and make a prediction about his life. The wise man predicted that Siddhartha would either grow up to be a great king, the greatest the kingdom had ever known, or he would grow up to be a great teacher. And he would leave the kingdom and and share teachings um, that would be um, transformative for the world for long periods to come. His father liked the first prediction and not the second. Uh, Didn't want to lose his son, wanted his son to be the great king, and so set about trying to make conditions that would not lead his son to to wish for a spiritual life, that every need possible would be met, and he would live this life of pleasure that he would never have any desire uh, to, to leave. So the father tried to surround him only with the easiest and best of things. Youth, health, wellness, um, um, food, um, a pleasure palace, all of these kinds of, of like indulgent um, pleasures. Uh, so his son would never get distracted by, by looking in another way. And as we know, there is no such thing as a life free of the elements of suffering. It doesn't exist. So of course, reality seeped in to to the the palace, um, despite the king's best wish of trying to keep it out. And symbolically, reality came in for visitors. Uh, the first three visitors were old age, sickness, and death. And for someone who had been deeply sheltered from old age, sickness, and death, the meeting of these, these um, um, realities by the story deeply shook Siddhartha, deeply shook him. And being someone of the nature to contemplate what does this mean, he set with this new understanding that all things change, um, that things are impermanent, and came to the realization that all the things he took for granted as the pleasures and securities and safeties that would bring happiness to the entirety of his life were actually ephemeral and wouldn't last, um, and that he too would have to face a different um, reality than what he was living. That knowledge meant for him that those extra pleasures no longer had any allure. They became meaningless to him. And furthermore, contemplating this these truths of old age, sickness, and death, he really came to a deeply compassionate awareness that every living thing is searching for happiness. Every living thing, every living person, every living being is searching for happiness in some form or another, but that most are so blinded by ignorance and desire that the search itself is often causing suffering. And that's kind of a profound realization when you think of what several people named in our in our morning circle, the conditions of the world, you know, to put into context all of the all of the people involved in the in things going on in our world having this shared impulse of a search for happiness. But doing it, but most of us doing it in ways that cause tremendous pain and suffering to ourselves and others. So the fourth visitor, he he, um, was left in kind of a state of despair after the first three visitors. Then the fourth visitor, uh, he saw a, a holy person, someone who had left the life of indulgent pleasures behind and dedicated his life to a spiritual awakening. Siddhartha was like, "Oh, you can do that," <laughs> and and um, found his true calling by this fourth visitor, and so left the palace. And interesting in the stories, he was already married, already had a young child, and he left his beloved wife, his beloved child, behind with making the vow that he would not return until he could bring some um, true understanding of relief of suffering uh, to uh, his family and and the world. So he left the palace in search of freedom from suffering. He first found masters of deep concentration, people deeply adept at um, understanding these absorptive concentrated states of the mind that um, um, can be achieved and have been achieved for for eons. Um, He found the best teachers possible. He mastered the technique. Um, The teachers asked him to teach uh, and he turned them down because what he found was that no matter the depth of concentration of absorption, Um, no matter how perfectly clear he could make his mind in these moments, when he would come out of these states, his suffering was just sitting there waiting for him. It didn't solve the, the root issue of why he had suffering in his life. And so he left that approach behind. He then um, tried the ascetic path, um, the denying, denying, repressing um, the body, trying to separate the mind and the spirit out from the from the body. He joined a small group of ascetics and of course mastered this as well, became the the leader, went to extremes that nobody had ever gone to, went to the extreme of body denial that he knew the only place this path could then take him was death that it too that that this extreme desire or attempt to disconnect mind spirit from body um didn't uh actually solve the root of what caused suffering in a life and not only that uh he came to an appreciation uh, from going to the extreme of it, the body, the taking care of the body actually mattered, that it was really important to care for the body as an instrument of, of awakening. So he came to what he called the middle way, a path that was not too lax and a path that was not too tight. Uh, the middle way that appreciates the gifts of taking appropriate care of body and mind and the freedoms of knowing when and what to renounce and a famous old teaching um, teaching story from from the the Buddha is the tuning of a instrument string, so if you consider like the string of a guitar or lute or violin. If you don't tune it tight enough, if it's too loose, it doesn't make any sound, it's just worthless. It just sits there and there's no way to make music with it. If you tune it too tight, it snaps, it breaks. So there's a a middle soft spot right in the middle where it's tight enough that it's not gonna break, loose enough that it has freedom of movement. And at that place, it makes its most beautiful music. So that's kind of the story of this middle way, You know, where's that sweet spot where we're showing up in our practice to take care of ourselves, but we're not so tight that we are pounding ourselves and, and making things harder. So in the story coming to this realization, a milkmaid happened to be passing with a bowl of milk and she saw him and offered the bowl of milk to him. Uh, he took the bowl of milk and drunk it and um, was refreshed in his body. The other ascetics saw Siddhartha accept a bowl of milk, and said to themselves, um, oh, that Siddhartha, he has just lost the true way. He is no longer one of us and not one of our teachers. He drunk a whole bowl of milk. Um, so they, they deserted him and left. <clears throat> and Siddhartha, unperturbed, went to sit under a Bodhi tree um, and so it is said that the bodhi tree that you can go to in India is the ancestor of the original Bodhi tree. Don't know, but there is a, a bodhi tree in India that you can go, you can go visit. Um, so he vowed to sit under this bodhi tree until he came to full awakening, full understanding of life. Everyone here has set enough that you can probably guess what happened next. When we sit, no matter how strong our vow, our intention is to show up and it be a certain way, you know, what's the first thing that arises? Our stuff. <laughs> it just, You know, if we sit and we get clear, our stuff comes rearing up. So the first thing that happened when he sat under the Bodhi tree was um, uh, symbolically his stuff came up. The, the final things that he had to fully meet to, to understand what caused suffering, what relieves suffering and the way out. Uh, and then the story is represented by a figure called Mara. Mara in the, um, tradition is our shadow side. Our, um, is the, the form of destructive wrath and, um, um, all things, all things, um, um, in the destructive realm. So Mara, Mara caught wind. that Siddhartha had sat under the tree and was going to sit there until it came to enlightenment and said, oh, no, we cannot let this happen. And so pulled all of his forces in to attack Siddhartha um, sitting under the tree. And first he sent his great armies, um, including like fire, fire arrows, all shooting at the Buddha, or I guess he wasn't the Buddha, he was Siddhartha. Um but no matter the the force of the of the army, nothing could touch the calm of Siddhartha, the peace that he had. So that didn't work. So then Mara sent in all the seductive pleasures. You know, it's kind of like first, like, I can't sit here, I can't sit here, this is awful, but then I make it through that, and then my mind goes, huh? well, isn't there still a piece of cake in the, in the refrigerator? If I get up now, maybe I can get the cake before anyone else in the family gets it. You know, I mean, so from, from the war to the seduction. Uh, so Mara sent his seven beautiful daughters to, to try to seduce um, um, Siddhartha. And of course that didn't work. And then the final vision, the final sending of Mara it's uh, kind of the ultimate Um, visions of ego unworthiness Um, really tried to make siddhartha doubt himself and his ability to awake you know how often is that kind of like the final thing that arises in the sit of why do i bother why do i even sit here nothing ever happens. so you know no Knowing that voice of ego unworthiness is not personal. It's been going on for thousands of years. And it's part of, part of this, this attempt to not see what we need to see. So Mara asked, who are you to believe that you can be enlightened? With hearing that question, Siddhartha did something that um, really powerfully beautiful and simple. He reached down and touched the earth. And you can see statues um, in in the Buddhist tradition of uh, the Buddha sitting with one hand touching the earth. It is of that moment that um, the last The last um, attack of Mara was uh, defeated with uh, Siddhartha touching the earth. It's often interpreted as the earth itself was his witness that he had done the work over countless lives um, to remove all greed, hatred, delusion, uh, that he had done the work um, to be able to awaken. That, That to me is really important it means that this doesn't just happen. We actually have to put in a certain kind of work if we want to continue to open on this path. There is an old, uh, another story in his childhood when he was nine years old of a moment sitting under a rose apple tree where he had this kind of mystical experience of the unity of all things. But it didn't last. He drew from that experience later in his life. But to get to the place of stability, it took a lot of practice. And that's, that's part of what that touching the earth, um, that the earth itself witnessed his practice. But there's another part of that, and that's to understand that touching the earth signifies that is our nature. This is, this is part of our being to wake up, that we are interrelated with all things. Um, the earth signifies our potential and our, and our possibility right from our relationship um, with being part of it. And that's where Thich Nhat and the touching the earth meditation is so powerful. I'm just gonna share that quote again. Uh, It was clearly related to this story from 2,500 years ago. We need to look deeply in order to see our true nature and the true nature of the earth. We need to look deeply to see that we are the earth. With this insight, love will be born. Our love and understanding will heal us and heal the earth. And so with this act of touching the earth, Mara was vanquished and Siddhartha free to sit to his full awakening. Um, um, Sit until he could see through all causes of suffering, the way out and his mind was clear. One story, it puts it like this, that what he came to, um, if a person could see the truth clearly as he himself had that night, all confused, running after pleasure and away from pain would stop. Without any more greed or hatred in our mind, we would never do anything to harm anyone else. Having all overcome all selfishness in our mind, we shall have destroyed the causes of unhappiness completely. With our hatred removed and our hearts filled with love, with our, with our hatred removed, our hearts will be filled with love, and this love will bring us a peace and happiness unlike anything we have ever felt. So that's, that's the, the promise of there is a way out, that there is a profoundly different way of being in this life just as it is which doesn't involve our typical struggle, but instead involves this just profound love and understanding. And when people really touch into that aspect of of our being deep enough that it stays with them, they are transformed, something different does happen. And I feel incredibly fortunate in my life to have met three people that I feel like reached a profound depth of understanding a nature of unconditional love. Um, one was Mother Teresa, another was Thich Khan, And then another was an old man I met in Kolkata um, many years ago who just had this palpable, palpable, peace about him, um, even as he was about to die, um, had this, this quality that he shared from the depths of his heart that you could feel in his presence. So what I will say is that I also know Mother Teresa ringed out one of my friends once. I've also heard accounts of when Thich Han loses his temper. I don't know about the, the old man. All I met him briefly. Um, but in this story, this man, Siddhartha, is said to have had the complete understanding, the complete awakening. And that's what the Buddha means, the word Buddha. It just means awakened one. It's not meant to be somebody who's some sort of God, somebody some, um, some sort of um, not quite human, but just the true potential of, of our human lives. And so after his enlightenment, he wondered whether or not he could teach this, whether or not there was a way to share this information that could make a difference from people. And he realized that while not everyone was ready to hear these teachings, there were some who were ready. And his first thought was the fellow ascetics who had left him. So he traveled to find them. And um, when they saw him coming out, they were like, oh, there's bad Siddhartha. We'll we'll turn our backs and ignore him. Uh, But as he got closer, they could feel that difference, that something had changed. And they immediately were drawn to him, sat with him, and he gave his first teaching, which is the Four Noble Truths. And then he went on to teach for 50 years um, and really clarified these teachings in a way that they have been passed down um, for a long time for a lot of people. So that telling of it took longer than I imagined, and I apologize for that, but I do, let's just pause for a moment right here. And I invite you to consider elements of this old, old, old story that might have relevance for your life. Awareness of sickness, old age, awareness of the fourth visitor there is this possibility dedicating our lives to finding a different a different way out of our pain middle way not too tight not too loose what do you know about when you get too tight in practice or too loose with practice. Touching the earth. That is touching the earth, open up, connectivity, grounding, centering, in a way that allows true nature to begin to emerge. Thank you.